0: Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational, convergent, third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, Grantham Church. Great to see you in worship. If you are visiting with us, my name is David Flowers. I'm a senior pastor here at Grantham. So I'm glad you chose to worship with us. Uh, almost a couple weeks ago now, you probably heard the story of the Titan Submersible. Did you hear that story? It was everywhere in the news. Um, basically, it was an experimental submersible that went down 12,000, intended to go 12,500 feet down to where the Titanic sits on the uh, seafloor. Uh, but the, the group of five people, two or three billionaires in there and, and a son of a billionaire in there, uh, they all perished in this thing before it even got down to the bottom. So you probably heard a little bit of that story. It, it, it really is a, a sad story. And um, as you saw, I mean, when things like that happen, it's all over Western, certainly Western media gives it plenty of coverage. But the story many of us did not hear uh, about was the one that occurred a few days before. Um, here's an Instagram post from NBC News. <clears throat> this is an overcrowded migrant ship carrying up to They believe up to about 750 people that were bound for Italy. It was carrying families from Afghanistan, Egypt, Libya, uh, Palestine, Pakistan, and Syria, all trying to escape horrific conditions in their home countries for a better life. The latest report said that 100 migrants were rescued at sea. Officials have recovered more than 80 bodies, as many as 500 people. 500 people, including children, are still missing and feared to be dead. And that was barely a a blip in Western media coverage. And so you see a lot of people on social media posting about this, and I had several thoughts and reactions to it myself. One, why is this not covered in the media like the Titan was? Um, And both of them, of course, are tragedies, but it's interesting the stories that get chosen and are covered and those that aren't. And then also, my next thought was, because you know, I'm not on Twitter, but it's funny I still hear about things on Twitter. Uh, it's a toxic, nasty place. I, I'm fine saying you should probably get off it. Um, but why some people feel that they need to demonize the rich explorers and adventurers when all people are precious to God. You see, you, you can actually say that. You know, we can actually say that both are tragedies and be very angry that these kinds of things like the migrant ship aren't covered in the media. You know, as Christians, we can recognize the bias of media and we can grieve both tragedies because we believe that everyone is made in God's image and the Lord doesn't want anyone to perish. That sounds biblical enough, doesn't it? <laughs> doesn't want anybody to, to perish. And as it relates to spiritual matters, particularly in the stories of the Bible, we certainly know that God loves, welcomes, and includes those that we least expect, doesn't he? And we're gonna see that in today's message. If you're just joining us, we're in a 12-week summer series called Saints and Sinners. And in this series, we are looking at various biblical characters whose lives were messy and broken to say the least just like the rest of us. And through their stories, we're seeing how God lovingly meets us where we are and works with us despite our past, our lack of faith, our sin, our doubt, or our age and limitations. He's simply looking for people who will give him their heart and trust him with their life. And then in, in his grace and our willingness to yield to the Holy Spirit, the Lord works us into his grand story of redemption. It really is a beautiful, beautiful thing as we try to get our minds around the love, the mercy, and the grace of God. So far in this series, we've looked at the lives of Abraham, Jacob, and Moses. And this morning, we're giving attention to the story of Rahab in a sermon entitled, Rescued by God. But before we go any further, please pray with me. Lord, we come to you once again in prayer, and we we say, Lord, that we want to hear from you. Holy Spirit, we know that we need you to be at work in our hearts and minds in order to do that. Lord, there are so many competing allegiances, voices, forces at work to shape us into the narrative, the thinking, the, 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 the belief system of the world. So, Lord, please form us, shape us, according to your spirit, according to Christ, according to his word. And all God's people said, amen. You have your Bible? If you would, turn to the book of Joshua. If you don't have a Bible in hand, there are Bibles in the pew back in front of you. And as you're turning there, let me just say a little bit about the background and context of what we're going to be looking at Today. So far, we've kind of gone chronologically through the Bible, though in a couple of weeks, uh, you'll see us jump around a little bit, but we're still in the Old Testament. Uh, so some background and context of the book of Joshua. Remember Moses, who we talked about last Sunday, led the Hebrews out of Egypt, and God established his covenant with them in the wilderness. And for 40 years, the Israelites were in the wilderness because of their sin and lack of faith. Before uh, Moses died, though, he gives the law a second time. Uh, This is what we call Deuteronomy. It basically means second law. So this is the law given and commands given to the generation uh, after the Exodus generation. So the kids or the children of the Exodus generation. And then Moses commissioned Joshua to lead Israel into the promised land. And that's where chapter 1 of Joshua begins. The book of Joshua is the narrative of the conquest of Canaan, which means, and listen carefully, it's it's full of exaggerations and ancient warfare rhetoric that was common at that time with some obvious differences. So let me state that another way. So what the Bible is doing is something that was common in that time in the way in which they tell this conquest narrative. But there are differences. I think significant differences. It's not first off this conquest narrative is not a free for all and anything goes. And we also see that peace offerings are given before there is violence. And the aim is not to wipe out the people but rather their evil practices. In the the book, The Lost World of the Israelite Conquest by John Walton, I've mentioned him before. He's an Old Testament scholar. He's given lots of attention to Genesis 1 and 2 and ancient cosmology and just the whole ancient Near Eastern context of the Old Testament. He teaches at Wheaton, by the way, Wheaton College. And he suggests that the point of Israel's invasion was about the dismantling of Canaanite culture, which included the worship of demonic idols, sexual perversion, and worst of all, child sacrifice. And we talked a little bit about that. Remember when Abraham, is uh, He takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah. Remember that? I told you that one of the lessons that I think are, is being taught there is that Yahweh is not like the gods of the Canaanites, the demanding child sacrifice. And so Walton would say that we can compare what's happening in the book of Joshua to what the Allies set out to do in World War II. They were on a mission to end the Nazi regime, but that didn't mean they had to kill every. German again so there are some exaggerations here but that's in keeping with ancient near eastern conquest narratives and so despite despite the genocidal language that's used it is obvious that take for example the phrase totally destroy everything that breathes or leave no survivors was not what literally happened we know this it's it's clearly uh, used as hyperbole because later on in the story, and this is in the Bible, we read that Canaanites are spared and that there are still many of them left in the city. So we know that something else is going on in the text and reading it literally is probably not the best thing to do. Therefore, some scholars believe that the conquest, is this is what I'm saying, wasn't a massacre. Instead, it was a gradual undermining and dismantling of Canaanite culture. In fact, only three fortresses were totally destroyed. One we'll see today, Jericho, another one called Ai, and another one, Hazor. And these were mainly military strongholds in the land of Canaan, not major population centers. Now, maybe you didn't learn that in Sunday school, but I believe that is according to the best scholarship today. Our story today focuses on the first as I said, of those strongholds. Here's a a map here. You can get an idea of where we're at. You see the Jordan River in the center there. In just a moment, we're going to read that the Israelite spies are sent from their camp in Shittim. That's how you pronounce that word. Be careful with that one. Now, let me remind you that they've been in the wilderness. How long? Forty years. Why? Because of their lack of faith. They didn't, it's not like they didn't have, well, they didn't have a compass, that's true. But it's like they didn't know where they were going. They were there. God had them there for a reason because they were disbelieving. They complained a lot. They weren't ready to be the generation that went into the land. That would be their kids. Now they're ready. And here they are. And so they're at their camp. And they, uh, Joshua sends two spies to this, this what we believe to be the oldest city, maybe the oldest city in the world, certainly one of them, Jericho, dating back to around 7,000 B.C., and today, the ruins of this ancient city are located in Palestinian territory in what is now known as the West Bank. And here's what some scholars think that Jericho looked like in the time of Joshua. There you go. It's believed that Jericho was not as large as it once was, maybe in its golden years. So it, it may only have had about two to 3,000 people there at the time of the Israelite conquest. And again, it appears that its primary function at this point was for military purposes and housing those that were connected with it in some way. So these fortified cities are the main obstacle to Israel moving into the land. We already know that the people of Israel wandering around the wilderness under Moses were seen as a threat. You know, word gets out rumors there's this large group of people out in the wilderness and so they preemptively attacked them and this, this happened. So some of these Canaanite tribes and cities had preemptively attacked the Israelites. And so they, they already know they're out there and that they're coming and they're probably on the lookout for it. Let's now begin reading in Joshua chapter 2. Uh, so I've given you a little bit of context and background here. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. Um, Shatim again, is the word there you may have. In your Bible, it simply refers to acacia trees, which was a common wilderness tree. A lot of things would have been made out of it. Even things in the tabernacle were made out of this, out of this tree. And notice Joshua sent two spies. Remember how many spies were sent when Moses was still alive? Twelve. Sounded like a good idea. Uh, uh, one spy per tribe of Israel. And most of those spies were Unbelieving, So they didn't think that God could give them the land. They came back, they gave a, a very fearful report, we can't do it. But two spies gave a positive report and said, we can do this, the Lord will go before us. Those people were Joshua and Caleb, Joshua and Caleb. So instead of 12 like Moses, there are only two, and that was in Numbers 13 through 14, by the way, if you want to go back and look at that story of Caleb and Joshua, they're the only ones that believed that God could give them the land. Verse, still in verse 1 here, look at the last part of that verse. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. Why especially around Jericho? Begin. it's a military stronghold. So the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there at night. Now, Rahab means, uh, her name means breadth or spacious, uh, why go to a prostitute? Why go to a prostitute? Well, where else could they hide? Strangers and foreigners going into a city to scout it out, to spy on it. They were counting on the occupation of this woman and her reputation to give them cover and protection. I mean, if she said something, who was going to believe her, right? So there you go. Verse two, somebody told the king of Jericho, Some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out on the land. So somebody recognized them. Maybe it was their accent, their their language, their clothing, something. It could have been anything. Gave them away. They gave them away. Verse 3. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab. So, so much for secrecy, right? They've kind of failed in their job. Spies are are supposed to be secretive in their work, but they they fail at that. And uh, and then the king of Jericho sends orders to Rahab, bring out the men who've come into your house, for they have come here to spy out the whole land. And then look at verse 4. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, look at what she says. Yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. what did she just do? She lied. Of course, Rahab is lying. Is that a problem? (laughs) Well, remember, she's a prostitute, so we don't expect her to be a paragon of virtue. All right? But also, as we will learn shortly, she believes that she is choosing the greater good here. She's protecting the two Israelite spies. Uh, you know, there were many cases during the, the Holocaust where G- Germans would hide Jews, right? And they would have to lie to say like the Gestapo who came looking for them because they believed, did they tell a lie? Yes, they told the lies. lying good? No, that's not a good thing. But in this particular case, they see it as the better thing to do, the more virtuous thing to do. And so does Rahab. So does Rahab. Verse 5. They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. She said, I don't know where they went. No, they know we know the gates close at dark, so she's saying, before it got dark, they went out of the city. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch them. <laughs> That's a little humorous, right? Hurry, quick, go. You can probably catch them. And then they they go out and they they try to find these two spies. Look at verse 6. Actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax that she had laid out. So they probably had searched the house but did not see these two spies because of the stalks of flax. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Bundles of flax. Now, this is a a fibrous plant plant. Uh, for you botanists in the room, uh, a fibrous plant with uh, a blue flower, three to four feet tall it would grow with a lot of uh, cellulose in the stalk. So you could cut this plant open, you could unravel it, lay it out to dry, and it could be used to weave uh, into clothing. So they're hiding under these stalks of flax. verse 7, so the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. And as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. Again, I told you they shut the gates at dark. This is typical of ancient cities, you know, in case enemies were to come, it's, it's safer to close the gates at night. Now remember, uh, Rahab hides them up on her roof. A lot of things would have happened on the roof uh, in the ancient world, cooking. Sometimes it was used as a hospitable place to house visitors. They could sleep up on the roof. So they're hiding there. Um, As I said, they probably had searched the whole place but didn't see them. Verse 8, before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof, to talk with them. Now, I think by the wording and the language here in Hebrew, notice it said, uh, before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up the roof to talk to them. They're not actually, we keep reading, going to stay the night there. But it's real careful, I think, in the wording is to say, they were there for one purpose. (laughs) And that was to spy on the land, even though they're at the house of this prostitute. So she took them there to hide them. She goes to talk with them now up on the roof. Verse 9. Look at what she says in verse 9. I know the Lord. Now, what do we say? All caps in English for Lord is the Hebrew word what? Yahweh. This is the covenant name for God. She says, I know that Yahweh has given you this land. Wow. Wow. Folks, that is an amazing profession of faith. (laughs) This is a deep theological statement. And look at what she says. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. Remember what I told you. They've been out in the wilderness a long time. Other Canaanites had preemptively attacked them. They know they're out there. And listen to what she's going to go on to say. They've heard the stories. We have heard how Yahweh made a dry path for you through the Red Sea, or maybe your Bible says the Sea of Reeds, when you left Egypt. We heard that story. How long ago was that? Forty years. (laughs) Plenty of time for this story to circulate. And we know what you did at Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. Now this word there is, is a word that means these things were totally given over to Yahweh. So remember the exodus that was 40 years ago. They'd also heard about the downfall of these two kings, which was under Moses. You can go look in Numbers 21 to see that story. These kings attacked them first. Once again, we can see this. word has spread about Yahweh and the Israelites in the wilderness and how their God is showing them favor over the other tribes. Verse 11. She says, no wonder our hearts have melted in fear. She's like, I get it. There's a reason. And and, and this woman can tell that Yahweh is the, as Yahweh means, ever living, only living, covenant-making God. You, You know, there's so much that the story, the text doesn't tell us, but we can just, our minds can begin to wonder and think about this woman even more deeply. She must not have a lot of faith in the gods of her own land to make this sort of decision. Maybe she's never seen those gods do anything for her before. And maybe she's wondering if this god, Yahweh, will. Something to think about. No one, she said, has the courage to fight after hearing these stories. For Yahweh, your God, the Hebrew word there is Yahweh, your Elohim. This this other name for God, the creator God, is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Folks, listen to what she's saying. She's just denounced all other gods she's recognized, which is one of the main lessons of the Old Testament, that there's only one God. There's only one God, and that God is the Lord. Their hearts had melted in fear. That is, their hearts had been in despair hearing the stories of this God. And Rahab is saying, I believe that your covenant-making God is Lord over all creation. This is a huge confession. And look at verse 12. Now she says, Swear to me, make an oath with me, covenant with me by the Lord, by Yahweh, that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters and all their families. We need to unpack this. Look at what she says. Swear to me by the Lord that you'll be kind to me. You know what word is used there in Hebrew? Hesed. This is that loving kindness of Yahweh that doesn't make sense to us. This sort of grace and mercy of the Lord. And notice Rahab cares a great deal about her family. She cares a great deal about her family. And it, and it begs the question, how did Rahab become a prostitute to begin with? I don't know if we actually stop and think about that question as much as we should, because this is not normally something a person chooses. Not normally. See, they're often forced into this occupation, or they're sold sometimes by their family in order to pay a debt. Now, the text doesn't tell us how Rahab ended up in this situation, but one thing I think we can be certain about is that she wants out of it. Amen? She wants out of it. and She believes, apparently, that Yahweh can get her out of it. Folks, this is great faith. This is greater faith than some of the stuff that we've seen out in the wilderness by the people of God. How often we see this sort of thing in the Old Testament. Places that we least expected. Remember, a few weeks back, we saw that with the sailors in the story of Jonah. And notice Rahab here made a faith decision and then she cut a deal. We usually do that backwards, don't we? We want to cut a deal with God and then we say, we'll, we'll utilize our faith. <laughs> but Rahab says, I believe. I believe. Now will you deliver me? Wow. Wow. We often want to cut the deal before we act on faith. God, if you'll do this for me, then I'll do this for you. But Rahab has it the right way around. Look at verse 14. And she says this, We offer our own lives as a guarantee for your safety. This is what the men say to her. We offer our own lives as a guarantee for your safety. You can believe us. This is what they're saying. If you don't betray us, we will keep our promise and be kind to you when the Lord gives us the land. Again, Hesed. We'll return that Hesed of the Lord, of Yahweh, when He gives us the land. We'll be true to this vow. Verse 15. Then, since Rahab's house was built into the town wall, she let them down by a rope through the window. Now, we're not sure why she has a window on the outer wall. I've got a, a picture here to kind of render what that might have looked like. Uh, We normally wouldn't think of people having houses on the outer wall. If there are windows on the outer wall, it's usually a place to watch from, a place to guard from. Guardsmen would be in these sort of places. But it makes you wonder if men have left this way before. But this time, it is for her deliverance, not only from the coming destruction, but also from her way of life. Look at verse 16. So she lets them down by a rope through the window. She says, escape to the hill country. Hide there for three days from the men searching for you. Then when they have returned, you can go on your way. And this, you can imagine, also involves some trust from the spies as well. They're taking a a big chance. Verse 17, before they left, the men told her, We will be bound by the oath that we have taken only if you follow these instructions. They say, we want to be clear about this. When we come into the land, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. And all your family members... Your father, mother, brothers, and all your relatives must be here inside the house. Tell them to stay in the house. If they go out into the street and they're killed, it will not be our fault. But if anyone lays a hand on people inside this house, we will accept the responsibility for their death. If you betray us, however, we're not bound by this oath in any way. Now the spies, again, they want to be clear on the oath that they've made. Now what's the deal with the scarlet cord? Did you notice that? It's not just any kind of rope. It's a scarlet rope, a scarlet cord. You can sort of see that here in the picture. And frankly, we're not sure. We're not sure. The text doesn't tell us why. As far as we know, there's no other reference to this scarlet cord, like say in the New Testament. Sometimes we might get some insight or, or, or we might see an Old Testament thing as a signpost pointing to Jesus in some way. But based on the story so far, if we were going to be in the business of connecting dots and hyperlinks and this sort of thing, we might see, might see the scarlet rope sort of as a Passover mark. Remember the blood of the lamb over the door. That would be my guess. We know it'd be clearly visible to the approaching Israelites as they later march around the walls. So look at verse 22, or 21, sorry. She said, I accept your terms, she said. She sent them on their way, leaving the scarlet rope hanging from the window. She wasn't going to wait three days. She left it. What does that tell you? (laughs) This woman wants to be saved. Hmm. Verse 22, the spies went up into the hill country and stayed there three days. The men who were chasing them searched everywhere along the road, but they finally returned without success. And then the two spies came down from the hill country, crossed the Jordan River, and reported to Joshua all that had happened. The Lord Yahweh has given us the whole land, they said, for all the people in the land are terrified of us. They are confident that God has gone before them and is going to give them the city. And from there we can continue to read that Joshua leads the people to Jericho, we see another miraculous crossing just like the Red Sea. This time God parts the waters of the Jordan during flood stage, mind you. They cross with the Ark of the Covenant and the priests. And then Joshua has an unexpected encounter, which is pretty significant. With the angel of the Lord, remember we've seen that figure show up a couple times already in this series. Sort of portrayed as an angelic commander of God's army. And Joshua, when he sees this figure, and this is very telling, this is important. He asks, are you for us? Are you for our enemies? And the angel responds, neither. Huh. Neither. You see, this shows that the real question, brothers and sisters, is whether Joshua is on God's side. And that's always the question, isn't it? God's not on our side. We're on his side. That's, that's the side we want to be on. Because this isn't really about Israel versus the Canaanites. Rather, it's about God's plan and a bigger redemptive story. And it seems the angel of the Lord is reminding Joshua of this. and Maybe also that Joshua has a fine line to walk to do as the Lord commands, right? To follow the Lord, to trust in the Lord. Not in another place we heard horses and chariots and the way that men think about winning battles. One of the lessons that's trying to be be taught here, I think, and so will the Israelites make it about themselves, rely on their own power, or will they trust in God to go before them and do things his way? There's a couple sermons in there. (laughs) At least in this first instance, they obey the Lord, and they wait on his timing, if you know the story. In chapter 6, if you skip on to chapter 6, we read how the Israelites marched around Jericho to music with the Ark of the Covenant leading the way. They're told to march around the city one time for six days, and then on the seventh day, they're told to march around how many times? Seven times. Then blow their trumpets and shout. Needless to say, this is not normal military procedure. <laughs> you don't have to be a military expert to see this, this sort of thing. Uh, some of this makes me wonder if this is God just saying, are you going to do what I tell you to do or not? And at that exact moment, right, the music Stops. The trumpets blow. The people shout. And in that exact moment, the walls of Jericho begin to crumble and fall to the ground. And it seems to me that this was likely God used an earthquake. Um, remember we've said this, I think we said it last week, that um, uh, often God sort of supernaturally uses natural things. Do you follow that? Supernaturally uses natural things. I once had a, a professor say that he defined miracles this way. It has to do with the timing the intensity and the location, the timing, the intensity and the location. It happened when God said it would happen, how he said it would happen. But nevertheless, this very well could be a natural sort of occurrence. And then the Israelites take the city. Now, before we go and continue on with Rahab's story and finish that up, let me just say a quick word about the violence. I I, I just couldn't imagine just skimming past that, not saying anything although that's not the primary point of this particular message, I do want to say, what do we do, when you ask that question, what do we do with the violence that we see in the conquest and the rest of the Old Testament for that matter? Well, first we need to remember that these stories are bound to their ancient Near Eastern context. I mean, we can in our sacred scriptures flip back and see that these things happened in a specific time in a specific location under a specific covenant, There are some holy books, I'm going to name names, that don't do that. You don't find an old covenant and a new covenant. You don't find it bound by its time and its context, which is why they can't make up their minds about what commands are in effect. But for us who are Christians, we should be able to see this very clearly. We need to remember that the stories are bound to their context. So the violence of the Old Testament should be seen as God meeting his people where they were in their time, in their context, somewhere around 1500 BC. And secondly, no matter how a person chooses to interpret the text and explain the Old Testament violence and what seems as if God is commanding it, one thing is clear. One thing is clear, Jesus condemned violence in his teachings. And Jesus condemned it in his own life, and he taught that his disciples are to follow him. And folks, for the first 300 years of the church, the people of God all agreed on this. It wasn't until they got their hands on state power that their theology began to change. So I can say a whole lot lot more about that, but let's move on. Back to Rahab in the book of Joshua, chapter 6, beginning with verse 22, verse 22. This is after the walls have fallen, they've taken the city. And meanwhile, Joshua said to the two spies, keep your promise. Go to the prostitute's house and bring her out along with her family. Now, you might wonder, I thought the walls fell. Rahab's house was along the wall. What's going on there? You know, here's the thing, and I could talk about the archaeology of all this too. It's all a bit fuzzy. I think anybody who tries to claim one way or another what archaeology says about Jericho is probably trying to support a particular reading or agenda because the fact of the matter is the archaeology in ancient Jericho is a mess. There have been thousands of years of erosion. It rains a lot there. When they rebuilt the city, they often used old materials, mixed it in with the new. So it's really hard to tell. But one archaeologist said that there's a part of the wall that looked like it was still standing. So maybe, according to the story, not all of the wall had fallen, at least not Rahab's portion. So she survives with her family. Verse 22. Three, the men who had been spies went in, right? Familiar faces to Rahab, brought out Rahab, her father, mother, brothers, and all the other relatives who were with her. They moved her whole family to a safe place near the camp of Israel, probably for continued protection for this Canaanite family. Let some time pass, make sure, oh, Canaanite's in the camp. You know, here they are, they're safe. They're safe with the people of Israel. Then Israelites burned the town and everything in it. Only things made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron were kept for the treasury of the Lord's house. So they burned down this military fortress. And then, again, this is a way of dedicating these things to the Lord and giving giving God the glory for this. And said, then... The Israelites, uh, it says, Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies sent to Jericho. And look what it says. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. <laughs> and that's not all, folks. Because of her faith in God, the Lord uses this former prostitute and the bigger biblical story of salvation. Listen to what Matthew tells us in the first chapter of his gospel. Maybe you never noticed this before because like some people I know, you just skip over the genealogy. But it's there for a reason, folks. Look at what Matthew says. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Skip to verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. We looked at Ruth some time ago here. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Do you see what's going on here? Rahab is in the line of Jesus. And her name also appears in what we refer to as the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. The author of Hebrews tells us it was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God. You may be thinking, well, why do they keep saying prostitute? You got to keep saying that word over and over and over. What? They're trying to make a point. They're trying to make a point. Look who God included because of her faith. When all the people in the city didn't believe, she believed. When all the people didn't obey, she obeyed. And she has given a friendly welcome to the spies. And because of it, she is in the line of the Messiah. So folks, what can we learn from Rahab's story? Here are a few lessons and takeaways for us. Number one, God wants to rescue, and hopefully you saw that just jumping out of the text at you. God wants to rescue and redeem those who are weak, vulnerable, and exploited. And He will take your mustard seed faith and He will multiply it. He will bless you if you will believe. But you see, there will be times when we must choose to align ourselves with God instead of our culture. I don't want to jump over that. That was a big deal for Rahab, to deny all of the gods of her ancestors, to, to separate herself from her own people. Now, you might say, well, she didn't have a lot of reason, apparently, to believe in her own people and to believe in those gods. And yes, that's true. But she had, certainly had reason to believe in Yahweh. So we need to remember this, too. There will be times where we must choose to align ourselves with God instead of culture. Will we be willing to do that? Do we have eyes to see when that time has come? God give us wisdom. We also, despite her sinful past we see uh, in the mistreatment that she would have undergone, and let me just say the word abuse that Rahab would have endured, she leaves a legacy of faith for us to imitate. And if God can do this with Rahab, God can do anything he wants with anybody who will believe. Amen. And like all of these characters we've seen so far, we can safely say Rahab was both a saint as well as a sinner. So in closing, here are a few questions for reflection and to help us respond to this message. I've asked this each week, and I'm going to ask it for Rahab. Can you see yourself in Rahab? If so, how? How can you see yourself in Rahab's story? Maybe, maybe in some way you can relate. Maybe not by her occupation, but maybe just her situation in life. Mistreated, abused, forced into a situation that she didn't want to be in. Can you see yourself in Rahab? Number two, are there things in your past that you need God to redeem? Or ways that you need to be rescued by him just as Rahab was? What, if so, what are those things? What are those things that you would want to consecrate and give to God? See, God, just take these things. Bring good out of evil. Take the broken things, mend them, repair them, bring beauty from ashes, Lord. Rescue me. What would you say to God today about that? And then number three, what is the Spirit saying to you through this message? And how is the Lord inviting you to respond? Whatever it is, I hope that you will do it, church. As we will be encouraged, first to be encouraged and uplifted by this story of Rahab, and then to be challenged that we would have the faith that she did. Let's pray together. Father, we we are thankful, Lord, for for the life and the story of Rahab. While not all of it was pleasant, and much of it was dark, Lord, you redeemed her. And not just her, her whole family. Lord, remind us this morning that you can not only Change our lives, redeem our lives, but you can change a whole family's lives. Would you do that? Would you do that for us today? Lord, we, we give you ourselves fully, wholly, totally to you. Have your way with us. Increase our faith. Help us to believe in your mercy and your grace and your power to bring the walls down. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.